was uh, pretty often um, pictured as uh, one of the reformers and one of those, uh, you know, people who led Ukraine to uh, some anti-corruption efforts, which is completely false, uh, unfortunately. And this was the case when Poroshenko was involved in the gray zone dealings, in my, in my, uh, in my understanding. Thank you, Alexei. I, I realize that you have to go at some point, and I'd just be remiss if I didn't ask you about something a lot more, uh, let's say, present. Um, do, do you want to talk briefly about where you were on February 24th, what you've done since February 24th? My understanding is you went uh, to the front for a while and then returned to your work as a journalist, right? If you want to outline things a bit, and possibly with the Georgian Legion, did you say that? Uh, yeah, it was a Georgian platoon within the International Legion. We called ourselves a platoon since uh, there were just 30 of us. The Georgian Legion is something else. Uh, it's run by the certain Mamuka Mamulashvili. Um, and this is there's quite a, a, a bunch of Georgians fighting in Ukraine for Ukraine's independence right now. But yeah, that was a different little uh, unit that we had. On February 24th, I was in Tbilisi. We just established a little... Um, sort of bureau for one of the media startups in Ukraine that is run by one of my close friends, uh, Roman Skripin, and uh, he's, uh, he's doing his own attempt to do some independent journalism and, uh, and broadcasting here in Ukraine, and we decided to establish a little bureau in the Caucasus, and I was there in Tbilisi when this whole thing started, and on February 25th, I got a ticket to Germany to grab my belongings there. Um, and I, I went to Germany, packed my, you know, two or three suitcases, uh, went back to Tbilisi, and I gave a call to one of my close friends who is um, actually still is monitoring the gray zone in Abkhazia in southern Ossetia, the uh, the activity I recently mentioned when I was describing the the Russian uh, places of uh, threatening people and. Uh, uh, doing the scripting annexation of Georgian lands. And um, I, I, I gave a call to this friend of mine saying, you know, what are you up to, mate? What are you doing? He said, yeah, you know, we're going to Ukraine. I know that, you know, politically speaking, you're one of us, but I got to ask you this direct question. Are you going with us or not? And I, it took me like half of a second, you know, a split second to say yes. And so we formed a little group. I... We went to Kiev, uh, my hometown, and we were in a couple of fights in uh, in Irpin and um, kicked some ass, I, I, I hope. And um, yeah, so during March and April, I, I was a volunteer fighter. Um, and then I came back to my uh, normal activities after we... Uh, we did it in Kiev Oblast, in Kiev. Thank you very much, Alexei. Um, yeah, so, thank you. Uh, thank you for everything. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for everything that uh, you know you were able to tell us that very few others would be qualified to, very experienced that very few others have had. Uh, if you need to go, feel free. If you do have more time, just let me know roughly how much more time, just so that I can you know direct traffic appropriately. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I just got to present on my phone, and I'm I'm away from a charger, uh, so I'll probably uh, I'll probably go right now. But uh, yeah, you're. Uh... Um, I like your podcast. I like your uh, your your uh, your room uh, pretty much. And uh, in case you would uh, you would want to speak more uh, on those issues, I'm I'm free to join you uh, sometime next week, maybe later. So DM Alexei, please please drop me a DM. I can't DM you because uh, your DMs okay. seem to be closed. So just drop me a DM ASAP, and we'll be in touch. Okay. 
Yeah, good. Have a great uh, morning. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, then we're in touch. Have a good day. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alexi. Uh, and thank you for dropping by. Uh, this one, I'll just make a few housekeeping announcements. Uh, first of all, it is uh, 4.30 Central European time, 5.30 p.m. in Kiev, 3.30 p.m. in London. Uh, this also means that it is 10.30 in the morning in New York and 7.30 in the morning on the U.S. West Coast. Uh, if you're in Australia or Japan or anywhere else, figure figure out yourselves. Uh, you know what time it is. In just one and a half hours, actually one hour and 27 minutes from now, we will be joined uh, by our very good friend, Mark Nelson, who is an expert in energy, including nuclear energy, transmission grids, and all manner of things. Uh, we will be talking about energy, we'll be talking about energy policy, European energy policy broadly, what should be done, what could be done to get Europe off of the dependency on Russian oil and gas. Those are critical issues because we need to stop funding Putin's war machine. Uh, and he will be joining us, as I said, in just one hour, 27 minutes. You can see uh, the alert for that on uh, the Water Report account. I'll re-put it in the next in a minute. In a minute just have to find it again um he will be actually joining us not just in one hour and 27 minutes but also again some five hours later both sessions are going to be about let's say an hour hour and a half maybe two hours we'll see how long we go uh but he's joining us twice once to account for all of uh, for everyone in the european time zone at 6 p.m central european time that is uh 7 p.m cave and then once again at uh later later in the european evening um, at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Eastern Summertime, uh, that is midnight. And sorry, that is 11 p.m. in uh, Central Europe and midnight in Kiev. So we're going to have two sets of, well, it probably won't be quite the same discussion both times, right? It will probably build somewhat, the second one will probably build somewhat upon the first one. Uh, but very many interesting things. We've had Mark Nelson with us before, twice notably, uh, while the Russians were doing all sorts of nonsense stuff on Chernobyl as well as uh, when they were uh, trying to occupy and eventually succeeded in occupying the Enerhodar nuclear power plant south of Zaporizhia. And he was always received with uh, rave reviews, as he will undoubtedly be later today as well. So don't forget, tune in in one hour and 25 minutes now, from now uh, for our first of two sessions with Mark Nelson. Uh, also, if you'd like to speak, just click the request button in the bottom left corner of the screen and so that we know to bring you up and talk to you to just about anything to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, furthermore, if you would be so kind as to check out Maria Aid up above, uh, you know, that'd be fantastic as well. Maria Aid is an excellent charity organization run by, among other, um, Colonel Melanie Lake, the most recent commanding officer of Operation Unifier, the Canadian Armed Forces training mission to Ukraine. Um, and they supply Ukrainians with all they need, with all they need um, in the non-lethal health department, because sending arms is illegal if you're not a government. But they supply them with all manner of things, from medical equipment, including for combat medicine, such as tourniquets, as well as things like body armor. And now, 10 Fury drones for forward observation um, for forward observation use. So recce teams don't have to get themselves exposed to um, to the Russian lines themselves, but can simply fly over them with 10 excellent, freshly built, uh, I believe UK-manufactured Fury drones. Um, so if you want to help uh, save a life, save a life of a Ukrainian soldier, um, you know, check out uh, uh, check out uh, MariaAid.org above 
just there in the title of the space. Uh, beware, there are scammers around who are using the Walter Report brand to get money for themselves, or who knows, possibly the Russian army. Don't fall for them. The only one that we promote here is MariaAid.org in the title of the space, as always. Slava Ukraini. So I was really glad to hear Alexei and can confirm uh, he has one of the great uh, journalists in the Ukraine and Skripin and Mojdabayev. Uh, it is great journalist, independent journalist who uh, doing great job since uh, 2014 for me and 2010 i know them because they uh, all this time was prominent in the ukrainian space so uh, it's great job great information all uh, superior so doing great job thank you thank you slava ukraini um by the way there seems to be a little bit of news and the little bit of news is uh, 19th time, apparently, being the charm. Uh, there are explosions reported at a certain place. Does anybody want to guess what place? Slavo Karini, do you want to guess what, guess what place? Kherson. Close, very close, just slightly to the, uh, well, northwest, is it? Slightly to the west? I missed. On the uh, outskirts of Kherson. On the outskirts of Kherson for 19th time in a row. Uh, Chernobyevka. Chernobyevka, indeed. Uh, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, apparently, I'm being told, is reporting uh, more explosions at Chernobyevka, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what to drink anymore. My Chernobyevka stash is all, all exhausted. Daniel, what's up? I was uh, just about to say Chernobyevka, but uh, I'm very happy to hear that it's been said. Uh, so, um, cheers. But there is was an explosion in the Kherson also. So, uh, so partisans did uh, their job. Uh, um, some collaborants are now uh, not working for the Russians. Thank you. Yeah, very well done. Very well done indeed. Right, The, the partisans in Melitopol have been very active for a long time now. The ones in Kherson kind of um, slowed down a little bit after the first few weeks, but are ramping things up again. And guess why? because um, Ukrainian troops are ever closer to actually entering the city. There's some reports of Ukrainian troops actually slowly entering certain uh, outlying suburbs of the city of Kherson. Um, but of course, the Ukrainian government requests everybody to kind of you know, keep quiet on the details because major military operations are underway, uh, which is very good news, at least on the southern front, you know, if not so much on the eastern front. Um, and it would make a big difference uh, for the Ukrainian forces, of course, if they could finally, eventually, expel the Russians from the right bank of the Dnipro. Uh, that would make things a whole lot easier for them, generally, right? All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you have something you'd like to talk about, uh, just click that request button in the bottom left corner of your screen, and we can get you up and talk to you about whatever you want to talk about to do with Ukraine. Raver! Yeah, I'm just going to try to throw a topic out there for conversation. I'm sure most of us at this point have seen that amazing video of that Sam launching up and deciding, no, I think I'm just going to go right back home and doing a U-turn and coming right back down into the ground. And I think it is just such a fitting metaphor for Russia's entire war effort. Yeah, it's um, it was a very impressive sight, wasn't it? So in... Uh, uh, in, in Slovenia, there's a, um, 
there's a, there's a saying that says something along the lines of who digs a hole for another falls into it himself. And I, I saw a fellow Slovenian put on Twitter um, who launches a, a crappy, decrepit missile at another uh, gets it up his own. Yeah, it, it was it was a really wild video. And the fact that uh, somebody was filming it's all the better because there were obviously a couple of other SAMs launched, which means uh, we're looking at them trying to respond to some sort of Ukrainian offensive action. And then that missile just turns right around and comes right back. And like, I don't know if it was a gyro failure or, or a, a motor failure, but it was really impressive and is, is worth looking at. A literal two steps forward, one step back kind of moment. Cheers, Raver. Um, by the way, Gunny just uh, messaged me. He's a little bit busy. Uh, however, he would like to ask everyone to remember his tattoo drive. Uh, if you want to get Gunny, uh, tattooed with an extra tattoo. This one in memory of two Ukrainian heroes, uh, Ratushny Roman, as well as uh, Yevhenia. And now I feel really bad because I've forgotten her last name, uh, a combat medic. Um, then please, 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 Semyonko, um, Yevhenia, there we go. Uh, please, please, please donate to Maria Aid and write Gunny in the notes. Uh, so that we know that you're you're donating also in memory of uh, Ratushni Roman and Semeninko Evgenie. Um, thank you, Gani. Uh, and uh, no, just a, a, a general announcement for anyone, uh, so you don't forget forget to do that as well. Dry fly. I want to thank you for ha- I want to thank you for having that last speaker on. I don't think <clears throat> people realize how important the fight in Ukraine is for all of us. I mean, yes, we know the Russians are these evil monsters, but that that web that he described is really entrenched in the West. Um, there was a saying by uh, a, a writer and journalist, uh, Upton Sinclair, that, uh, it, that that speaks to this whole notion of appeasement and the people who are behind appeasement. We can't know always their motives, but I'm always a bit suspicious. And the quote is, you can't make a person understand something when his income comes from not understanding it. And and I just, every time I hear people like Schultz and um, Mark and, uh, and some of the other appeasers and in the peasers on our side of the pond whether it be the people at fox news who are who are constantly kind of trying to paint the idea that the russians aren't that terrible um i I just go back to that quote and i keep thinking it's not just philosophy there is a financial incentive on them going back to the way it was and i'm not saying that they all support putin and they all think putin's a good guy I'm saying that there is a strong economic incentive to go back to that graft, that corruption, that contraband, and all of the skimming that they did prior to 2014. And even after, as we heard from your speaker, I just think that's a front that we need to fight in the West to help Ukraine. And Ukraine is helping us fight that front here. And I just think you need to make that Keep that message alive in people's minds because it makes it a lot easier for us in the West to convince people to keep the political pressure up, to keep the weapons pumping, and to keep 
the front strong. That was all I wanted to say. Thank you, draft play. Um, yeah, very true. And and you know these sort of, I, I am I going too far calling them calling them fifth columnists, right? They exist throughout. Uh, they exist in all manner of, of free countries, and you know it's part of, part of the beauty, perhaps, of uh, living in a free country that even people with the most reprehensible of opinions are let to exist, uh, as long as they're not let to dictate and decide what our policy should be. Artoir, can I can I just add oh, one more absolutely, thing? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But the other thing is that people need to understand that it may be more than just philosophy. It may be more than just an opinion. What he described, that Financial motives. Yeah, that contraband train was really significant. One of your speakers on, on your site, and I don't remember who it was, but it was about a month ago, said that the largest number of GRE, GRU officers outside of Ukraine, okay, is in Mexico, helping the cartels uh, push contraband into the United States, okay? So we, we think that this front is a long, long way away. It, it, it twists through back channels and alleys that lead all the way to Tijuana and, and Laredo and El Paso. And we just can't. And, and it's a huge funder for some of the dirty business that the FSB and the GRU do. It's connected again through probably, I mean, there, there's a lot of indications that that's connected through the, the Russian mob in New York and in, in, in Miami, that this is not just in Ukraine. It's not just in Europe. I mean, it's a fight that's in the shadows that we all have to. It's just that this is where the front rose above the surface. It's what we see. It's the massacres and the, the atrocities in our face. But that isn't to say that there, there aren't connections and roots much, much deeper into the corruptions into our own societies. We actually have a dog in this fight. And I think we need to remember that. Thank you very much, Rafi. Um Very true. Artois. Afternoon all. Uh, I, just, I, just, I want to say first, the, the, the guest we just had, the, the gentleman from Ukraine, um, the journalist was, was superb. I hope he comes back. It's, um, for me personally, one of the best uh, parts of this space is actually getting to hear sort of the Ukrainian voices and those with uh, first-hand experience of what's going on. So that was amazing. Well done, whoever uh, organized that. Um, ben, so you just unmuted. No, nope, he dropped. Ben's gone. Okay. Um, yeah, and the, the the German thing. Uh, I, I did see uh, an interview uh, with the Ukrainian outlet from uh, Andrei Melnik, the ambassador for Ukraine to Germany. Um, he was talking about, uh, you know, he's been quite vocal about getting martyrs and leopards and all that kind of thing. But he, uh, I saw an interview today. He mentioned that German industry. Um, had indicated that they could supply, now obviously not immediately, um, but they would accept an order uh, for 100, that's 100, uh, Panzerheibitz, which we know um, they already have a couple of, but uh, getting 100 of them in the order books would be quite significant. And he's saying that he's waiting for the the green light, um, essentially from Berlin, to go ahead with the purchase of those. Um, Obviously, now that some have been sent, hopefully, uh, there wouldn't be the same, let's say, political hurdles to, to getting that across the line, but um, that's potentially a, a piece of good news, and, and maybe you know the, the, there really would be no excuse not to to, to rubber stamp that um, from the Bundestag and, and Schultz. Uh, so hopefully, you know that's they, they can yeah significantly increase their their Western Howitzer numbers if that goes through. 
Absolutely, and really hope not, right? It would also allow uh, perhaps other countries, maybe the Netherlands, maybe Germany, maybe Italy, right? Other countries that have, I think Italy has PZ, PZH 2000 as well, you know, to maybe be able to send some of the older stuff to to Ukraine and just get in line for uh, for new stuff being built by Rheinmetall. Maybe that would be a good idea. Um, just as I was saying this, uh, our friendly Swiss artillerist said that new builds would only be available in a few years. Yes, exactly, right? And and this is why I may be thinking maybe, you know, um, some of the others who might have some already in stock would be happy to, to move to move things along a little bit. Um, just so, uh, just to, to touch, sorry, on, on what Dryfly was, was talking there about the sort of the, the fifth columnist and such, um, Jessica Berlin, uh, I, I think probably quite a few people follow her. Um, she's a great journalist based in Berlin of all places. Um, she she posted kind of a, I guess maybe an inflammatory tweet, uh, but I was directed to it by uh, a number of Germans, so it makes me feel comfortable uh, sharing it. And her sort of thesis is that um, basically Germany. Artwar, have we lost you? Okay, we've lost Artwar. Uh, MP, go ahead. I'll try to get Artwar back up in the meantime. MP, MP. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, very actually important discussion, you know, about European, European, you know, ability to supply Ukraine. So we have a lot of ability to do that, but, you know, it's a, like a political will. And, you know, this channel, you know, Doman and Axel and Walter and everybody else who is hosting this, this will change kind of the will of Europe. And I think so we will get there. So that's kind of my understanding. And, uh, I see Antti's Antis soon going to be speaking here as well. So super important, like Axel said, you know, Germany alone with, 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 with all, all the capabilities of, you know, supplying, you know, weapons of war and basically their suppliers, uh, they have it already. So we, we don't need to have it. Everybody's every, everything sent, you know, Cross, cross, you know, transatlantic, uh, you know, crunch food. But uh, this is a deciding, deciding moment for the Europe itself. And I think so. Europe is going to be waking up. I'm already, you know, preparing actually for winter war. What's going to happen next? So, so that's kind of my comment. Thanks, MP. Yeah, this is something that I was wanting to highlight, and then uh, Artwork dropped. I was going to phrase it as a question. You know, don't we know someone who's been uh, saying for basically four months now that German industry is capable and ready to do this and it was only political limitations that have prevented them from doing so already? And indeed, yes, it was indeed. You know, Rheinmetall was always perfectly happy to refurb some Mardas and send them off to Ukraine, you know, etc. Um, and and the, the German Mittelstand Association, likewise, were very happy to go out and, you know, deliver armaments to Ukraine. Uh, and there were only really fundamentally political limitations that were imposed from the outside onto them that prevented them from being able to supply Ukrainians with uh, what Ukrainians not just wanted, but needed to be able to defend themselves against the much larger invading armies, right? Um, and hopefully, hopefully, this, the, the days of the, those days will soon be over. Artwar, you, you were connecting, 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 and never could get connected. So uh, maybe try again, maybe disconnect, uh, quit the app, clear the cache, all that good stuff, and try again. It is nice to having, you know, having at least read Andrei Melnik, the Ukrainian ambassador to Germany, to at least sound hopeful. 
for once because usually you know he sounds kind of um at his wits end rather than hopeful uh when talking about germany and it's a it's a welcome change it's a welcome improvement um that for one he uh uh you know he does that what are the spring um shall we talk about brazil a little bit what are um, we have to speak about the brick uh, meeting yesterday um it was held by china online and BRICS, uh, for the ones that are not so don't know so well the organization it's the organization of emergency economies that BRICS means that it's the beginning of the letters of the country so it's brazil russia india china and south africa and yesterday they held a meeting and um uh i where I, I read it, the, the news in um, Brazilian, uh, Brazilian, sorry, Spanish newspapers that was actually explaining very well the meeting. And um, what we can see is that uh, um, they are giving again importance to Putin and to the Russian administration. So the main conclusions that I got by reading that. Um, that news is that China has pointed out to NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe as being responsible for the war. So China resp- uh, thinks that the responsibility of the invasion of Ukraine is from NATO. Uh, secondly, the South Africa president uh, also followed the narrative. So he actually pointed out that it was NATO's fault. Um, third, India has not condemned the invasion and it's buying larger quantities of barrels of Russian crude. And in fifth place, the Brazilian president has defended his country position as neutral, uh, although he condemned uh, the Moscow attack. Um, I will highlight that Brazil is about to have um, elections. And this is this one is Jair Bolsonaro. That it's a right wing one. That is um, um, has a dubious uh, role in this Russian invasion because it depends on the days that he support uh, more or less Russia. But the the one that uh, is the opponent and probably will in the election is Lula da Silva, and is actually pro-Russian. He, he also thinks that it was um, NATO's fault because he's from left-wing, right, actually quite left-wing. Thanks, Rick. So, in short, let's say, let, let's look at Brazil first, right, and maybe you can help us out with Brazil specifically because, I don't know, apparently you speak the same language as they do, roughly. Um, so, they're having an election soon, and it's basically going to be between two candidates who, neither of whom is particularly reasonable when it comes to Putin, right? Completely. Both of them um, have the same dubious position. The left-wing one is um, more pro-Russian. It's a socialist um, from the old guard, but um, what I would call a left socialist, really. Probably the situation will get worse, even. Thank you, Spring. Um, Kafteli, do you have a question about the BRICS or a comment to make about the BRICS? Uh, 
Yeah, I do have a comment. Um, yeah, honestly, um, I would not pay too much attention to this organization. Like, first of all, these countries are on uh, different continents. Um, I was wondering what South Africa's comment on this was, because, uh, you know, to me, it almost sounds like, um, so there were like uh, countries that are clearly democracies. If you are looking at economically growing countries, most of them are democracies. And then uh, there were countries people didn't know where to place, especially China and Russia. And uh, they created or invented these bricks and then they, uh, these people from BRICS decided, hey, let's make an organization. I don't see how this organization is useful in any form or shape. And even if you, okay, so what they are doing right now, they are buying uh, cheap Russian oil, at least uh, China, India, and Brazil. I believe Brazil joined that club too. But, uh, uh, Alex, sorry, just interrupt you. Brazil has its own oil, okay? Yeah, I know. I know it has its own oil, but uh, I, I've seen stats that they increased the purchase. You know, nobody would mind cheap oil. It's not that I'm not saying this is bad or, or, or anything, you know. It's, um, well, it's definitely not good, but uh, what you can do. Like, they see cheap oil, they go and buy it. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it, it won't add too much money into Russian budget because... Like you can imagine how far this is and uh, it's quite expensive and it's being sold at very big discount. But anyway, um, I just don't see how this uh, organization is uh, honestly even... Because, okay, so these countries are not close together geographically or, or, or again, you know, this is probably the only organization except for UN where you would see China and India together. And uh, I mean, they don't get well along. Uh, so it's like, yeah, um, I won't worry too much about what BRICS said. China said what, what it always saying, which is they want to blame NATO for everything because um, if China attacks Taiwan, I think, um, first of all, I don't think anybody wants this, but uh, they pretty much think uh, NATO will... Uh, be, be against it in, in one form or other. And uh, I think they are right. Um, India, like, what did they say? Uh, that they are, what, neutral in this? What yes. was India's Yes, they are, but they are, they increased uh, the buying of petrol from uh, Russia. Yeah, I, yeah, we know that, but uh, that, that's uh, okay. But pretty much they didn't say much, except for, okay, they are buying oil. Um, Brazil said, uh, so this is even, you know, mixed bag of statements, like from even China and India statement are not very even close together. China is the only one who said, oh, no, and it did, didn't even, you know, it says NATO is uh, culprit of everything. But like anybody who has any brain would understand that, like it wasn't NATO who attacked anybody. NATO still hasn't attacked anybody. You know, like how you can blame NATO for Russia invading Ukraine. It's kind of, but, uh, you know, they, they don't have to worry about truth, I guess. At least our Chinese friends or 
not friends, whatever. Um, and others are like, South Africa didn't even say anything, and it was a smart thing to do. Like, uh, India right now is like, uh, oh, yeah, it's, I don't even see as, a, as one statement. Each country said something of its own, and uh, sometimes they are kind of radically different. Yes, they are buying... Russian oil because it's cheap, because it's at a discount, but that's pretty much it. Uh, so don't, uh, uh, Alex, sorry, don't you think it's also the importance of the the amount of population that they have worldwide, because it's China, India, what, it's 2.5 billion, something like that, or even more? And yes, it's Brazil with 300 million or 250 million? Yeah, they are big economies because uh, a lot of population. But in terms of, you know, uh, the, the population itself, um, I mean, a lot of like, okay, so let, let's look at India. What? About 1 billion population um, and about 30% is arguably middle class. Uh, probably two thirds of it are so poor that they... Barely, you know, they, they don't have time for any politics of any of any type, you know. They they are more, mostly concerned about price of corn and uh, grain and that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, a lot of similarities with Brazil, too. Uh, to begin with, all of this country, maybe except for what, but, okay, how is the economy in Brazil right now? It's probably not very good, right? Not in very good shape. The idea that I have is that it's not in very good shape because it was a lot of um, corruption crimes. Um, and as far as I know, it's not very going very well. No, not at all. Correct. So it has plenty of its own internal issues. So how much do you think they really care about, you know, a big continental war somewhere else? They join this brick uh, in hope to get some use out of it. Um, and uh, all they are getting right now maybe is... Uh, and you are right, they have their own old production. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe they want to, you know, develop stronger ties with China. Uh, China really is the biggest driver here in that organization. Uh, but um, China itself has some internal things uh, going on. I'm not sure to what extent it can still, uh, you know, continue giving out loans. Uh, it may or may not be able to because, uh, yeah, it's it's very, like, you cannot gate China, like, you know, in in an open society, you look at stats, you, but in China, that's all, like, it's very complicated. It's so intertwined and... Uh, Who owes what? It's almost, you know, those mortgage uh, securities uh, in the uh, United States just a few years ago. Like, this whole thing may... Uh, it is very hard, you know, uh, to figure out who's uh, who owes whom, how much, and when, and uh, and so forth. It's it's very complicated thing. So, yeah, may, maybe in economic... In economic sense, they all want something from China. Uh, but again, I don't even see a uni one uh, statement from an organization. Like, to me, what 
you just read it's uh, almost every single member made its own statement you know based on its own internal policy which like this is nothing uh, russia was trying to probably counter you know counterbalance eu's activities or nato's activities but you know at least nato and the eu they come up with joint decision joint statement you know it's it's not like everybody said his own opinion about something and then they kind of went ahead it's i think russia was trying to demonstrate it's kind of that it's not alone on international state but pretty much failed to do so like they failed with odekabe uh, because again you know china did not discuss russia didn't discuss ukraine it says nato is uh, you know it's all nato's fault which is nonsense uh, india said uh, oh we are buying oil from russia and we want to have good relations with russia like okay uh, brazil said uh, we are against war but uh, also and then south africa didn't say anything pretty much it's to me this organization is dead honestly uh, like they came up with four different statements alex uh, what i thought about after reading the article it's more than ever strategical the western countries has to be self sufficient in many things and don't depend on china and any of these countries i agree i agree we should not depend on china to produce everything for everybody else that's that was a mistake um, and that pass was a wrong one uh, taken like decades ago it should also like maybe the whole wto organization concept needs to be revisited because uh, i'm all for free trade but the free trade should be among uh, countries that have some joint values you know you there is no point to have kind of free trade with a regime like russia you know and then pretend for three decades that a terrorist regime is your partner in anything it, it is like as of today they are, you know they are on their way to get um, status of terrorist regime uh, and which will be true like i was driving i couldn't participate really but that um Uh, journalist uh, uh, Alexei was his name or Alexander it, it was very Alexei, yeah. yeah basically what he described is uh, like people are being you know kidnapped for ransom and this is covered by Russia this is under uh, under so called frozen conflicts you know and meanwhile we are or we were calling uh, that terrorist country this is called terrorizing population uh, kidnapping them for ransom and uh, those people uh, are partner in whatsoever and um, yeah and that's how we, we were dealing with this stuff for decades so i agree we should not uh, china is not like uh, but we do not really know what they are doing with these uyghurs we do not know what they are doing uh, you know underneath uh, this they have this appearances they seem to be Uh, much more kind of uh, robust uh, it's almost like politburo during ussr but what is happening inside china nobody really knows i agree with you but nobody depends on india or nobody depends on brazil it's the other way around brazil and india depends on the uh, on the free world and they they better realize and uh, uh, stop the- games with China and Russia. 
I, I agree, Alex. Uh, by the way, we got Jingu joined us, and I think he'll say that he knows what's going on inside the in, inside China, and he'll tell us in a second. I just want to. I lost you. I can't hear you. Yeah, Alex. I know that、uh, you have very romantic feelings about China. I came from that regime, and the one thing I would say is very, very, very dangerous to have any romantic feelings about China. Okay, I know that、uh, you think China has been doing great compared to Russia. China is way ahead. China is very, very accomplished. Blah blah blah. I heard that many times. But China is one hundred percent a lot, lot worse than Russia. That's number one. Number two, what China is doing? Very simple. What Russia is doing to China is one word: prototyping. They share the same dream. They share the same goal: dismantle the world order. So to imagine that China could be dependent upon to. Make the situation better is almost like you think Tojo could be depending upon to defeat Hitler, just because Tojo was not in Europe, just because Tojo was not invading Poland. So one day maybe Tojo could be depending upon to defeat Nazi Germany. That's what I've been hearing many many times. I understand that you have a very strong dislike of Russia, thinking China is much much better. No. China is much, much, much worse when it comes to human rights, when it comes to genocide, when it comes to bringing the the world order down. Xi Jinping, if if you know Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping will make Putin looks like a normal person. That's how bad it is. Okay. I I,、uh, I agree with you, Jin.、Um, I don't have any romantic feelings about China. It's just.、Uh... Yeah, like、uh, we have to pick up fights, right?、Um, this is this is a fight you cannot pick because here's the one thing. Like I said, China is not going to do anything to hurt Russia. In China, in communist China's mind, what Russia is doing is called prototyping. If Russia is successful, let's do it together. If Russia is not successful, let's watch what other paths Russia will do. Maybe Russia's attack on. Ukraine is not successful. Let's wait for a little bit. If Russia attacks Georgia, it's successful. So now, let's not attack Taiwan. Let's attack Vietnam first. So that communist China's. If you if you understand the genocide, the scale of the genocide, okay, China's genocide on Uyghurs is ten times worse, ten times bigger than Ukraine. The only The only reason you're not you're thinking China's doing better is because Uyghurs are in Asia. They're a lot more brutal, a lot more worse. It, Russia kidnapped Ukraines to put them in the Far East and let them go away. So that's what Russia is doing for for the genocide. What China's doing the genocide is a lot, lot worse, lot, lot worse. It, if Uyghurs are treated like What Russia is doing to Ukraine, that would be a significant. I hate to say that that would be a significant improvement to how China is treating them today. Okay, I I don't disagree with you. I I actually agree with you. What what I said, and I have no romantic feelings here. I what I said is we need to make sure we do not depend on China because, like, you know, whether you need、uh, any like any basics,、um, like. They produce almost everything.、Uh, it's uh, it's uh, we need to cut that dependence.、Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 
Felix, I agree. So here's one more thing. If you go to, for example, if you visit the stores in Walmart in the United States, it has been a long, long time. China is not really producing everything. That's number one. Number two, when you look at the cost of China producing everything, my wife makes one makes sure one thing: I don't order things made in China. We both came from China. My wife thinks that's dirty, that's bad, and the other thing is quality is terrible. So we both came from China. So if you look at what China is doing, this is what China is doing. Pretty cool. You're right, producing everything. So for example. There are many companies moving their equipment to China. So there are local companies producing the products, putting the brand on it, right? So the agreement is that the equipment will be used for eight hours a day, for example, to produce certain things. For example, like Nike. Okay, they produce Nike shoes or they produce the electronics. The equipment was the agreement was to use it eight hours a day. So the Chinese company would use it for sixteen or twenty-four hours a day. Eight hours is to produce goods using your brand. The other sixteen hours is to produce goods, slapping their brands on it. Then they mark it down for twenty, thirty percent. So the next thing you know is on the, you know, on the market, there are many things produced in China looks exactly like. What you ask China to produce, but using their brand, using your equipment, that's what China is doing. If you look at the other thing is we look at, for example, the military equipment. It's the, so there's a channel actually I watch. I was laughing because China is, is claiming it has many many advancements in new military innovation. Do you know what it is? They actually go to they actually go to the for example there's there the new. Development, new invention made open source. So now, all of a sudden, the design, the source code were made available. Then Chinese military would have someone come in to use open source documents and everything to produce something. Then they say it's their innovation. That's what China is doing. This, the the problem with China. Don't get me wrong. I love Chinese people. I came from China. I want them to do well. But here's the problem. That the obsession with greatness and the obsession with dominance is exactly like what Russia is doing. It's like addiction. The, the the culture has one element, which is like addiction. It's like addiction to heroin. It's addiction to world dominance, expressed in a different way. They they, they tramp the world order, tramp anything. Okay, this is something that I really hope there's a like a resounding defeat in some form. That just like in the Russians, there's a resounding form, humiliating defeat by Ukraine. That's eventually lead to hopefully to some kind of disintegration. Until that point, this nation will go back to that addiction over and over again, and it will really eventually destroy itself by destroying the world. What do you think it will be? What was the role of this meeting of China? Was it promoting Russia? So your basic assumption is anything communist China is doing does not mean well. Okay, it is the communist China's relationship with Putin is just like Tojo's relationship with Hitler. The best you can hope for is it stays aside or does not jump in to make the situation worse. Anything if you are dreaming that they can make the situation better is directionally wrong. Russia to China is prototyping.
So basically, they share exactly the same goal. Russia and China share some very basic assumptions. Okay, the Western world order, as we know today, is inherently immoral to them, oppressive to them. Oppressive, not that oppressive to oppress the Chinese people. No, the oppressive is to oppress the ruling class. They view that as oppressive. What, what does that mean? Putin wanted something. The West would not allow him to have it. Xi Jinping wanted something. The West would allow would not allow it to happen. So that's oppressive. Xi Jinping wants to put the Uyghurs into the concentration camp. The West is raising hell on them. That's that's interpreted as oppressive. So Putin wants to you know the com, 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 commit genocide to to the Ukrainian people. So the West puts sanctions on Putin. So that's in Putin's mind. "Quote unquote oppressive to him." That's their view of the world. Thank you, thank you, Jingyu. We're really, uh, you know, we're really thankful to have you around, so you can explain all of these things to us. Because obviously, most of us can't read Chinese, don't follow Chinese language news, and it's a, it's, it's just such a very different conception of the world that the, the Chinese authorities have. Um, I'll just do a couple of housekeeping announcements. Thank you, Jingyu. Just a couple of housekeeping announcements. First of all, if everybody can go up in the nest, the most recent tweet. Uh, could you retweet that, share it out, maybe quote tweet it, share it out? Because in just uh, thir- just over thirty minutes, we'll have Mark Nelson with us to talk about energy. And right, just as we were just discussing the importance of our industrial dependency on China, well, Europe's especially energy dependency on Russia is even much greater still. So uh, this is what we're going to be tackling in just uh, just over thirty minutes from now. If you could please go out, retweet that. Uh, get as many people to join in as possible. It's a super important topic, and we're really glad to have uh, Mark Nelson joining us. Um, so please go ahead and do that. If you want to come up, request to speak, just click that mic button in the bottom left corner, and we'll bring you up. Uh, just share out the space out as well. Uh, big blue button, bottom right corner. You all know the drill. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to Joseph. Joseph probably has a question, as per usual. Joseph always asks very good, incisive questions. Uh, and then I'm going to ask CJ something about some Panzerhaubitze, because there are some rumors of some extra Panzerhaubitze uh, reported by the German press agency of all people, straight from the German defense ministry. Uh, and that's very exciting news, isn't it, CJ? So let's go to Joseph, and then CJ and I are going to talk about Panzerhaubitze a little bit. Joseph. Thanks, Owen. I'm sorry to stand in the way. I feel like I'm always in the way of your Panzerhauser questions. Um, so uh, I guess I just had a, a brief question for Jing. In terms of, um, you know, the sort of energy relationship or the hydrocarbon relationship between Russia and China, I think a while back you you gave a very good description of like China China's internal security service as like this, you know, mass of armored troop transports constantly moving around China. And that's why you know, this energy security or particularly oil security is so important to them. But I guess I was wondering in terms of like a long-term energy relationship, um, do you see China as like being very dependent on Russia or having other options or doing their best in terms of policy to create their own energy generation through nuclear and other means? Or do you uh, think that, uh, you know, Russia and China are kind of or, or China's energy dependent on Russia for the foreseeable future. Thanks. That's a very good question. So there are many energy experts on this in this space. I heard many things, and a lot of things are being confirmed in the in the real report. So it is right now a little bit conflicting. So a couple of things. The first is the structure. Okay, 
China relies on the energy, a lot of energy in the world. So there are many people saying that China imports around 80, 85 to 80%, 80 to 85% of the energy from outside. The real number is probably like 60 to 62%. That's how, how much China relies on the, on the external. Now, it, when, it, when it comes to the breakdown, it's, if you take a look, take that 60% of import as 100%, then the, uh, out of all the imports, about 60% comes from the Middle East. About 18 to 20% comes from Russia. Now, here's one thing that uh, many people on this, in this space, like for example, Craig was the other day was talking about. Uh, the, the, his prediction was the, uh, because there's a sanction and many Western companies are leaving so, so, so that Russia cannot produce a lot of the, uh, a lot of the oil and the gas. That's exactly seemed to be what's happening in the part that China was at importing from Russia, because that part seemed to be, to be struggling because a lot of Western companies, they're, they're the engineers and so on, not helping Russia to pump out the oil. Guess what? That's the part which heavily, really, it more heavily on the on the on the Siberian side. So China's import of oil came came from mostly came from Siberia. So it seems there there are many reports saying that that part is right now getting into trouble. With that said, does China want the Russian oil? Absolutely. But the, but the problem is it's it's exactly that the practical issue is the the. The, two, the thing you just mentioned. Number one, their current oil consumption import, 60% comes from Middle East. And that part uh, is very, China is very sensitive to. You cannot switch away from that. Then that part is very vulnerable to Indian Navy, US Navy, and the, the other, you know, the naval power in that region. So if there's a sanction slapped on, on China, that part, is going to kill China. And the other thing is just exactly like you said, communist China is a very, very unstable, inherently unstable structure. It relies on a huge domestic security force to keep itself in power. And they are running the armored vehicles around to, to put out the rebellions and uprisings, thousands of them every year. So if the, the, these security forces, internal security forces don't have the oil to roll out their armored vehicles, the regime is in immediate danger. So that's that's probably why we are looking at it. It's kind of it's kind of a conflicting report. Number one, China is buying a lot of Russian oils still, and right now is actually uh, getting more aggressive in seeking the Russian oil. At the same time, the, the in the inside the communist China, there are factions which is looking at the situation, saying, "Well, wait a minute." I don't want you guys to go too far because if you guys go way too far, then our oil from the Middle East are cut off. Then we are in immediate trouble. The other thing is the Middle Eastern oil and the Russian oil are very different in, in terms of its makeup. So it's almost impossible to go overnight to say, okay, I, I don't use the, the Middle Eastern oil. I start to use the Russian oil 